I think we're going to get started. Uh, there's some people that are just going to take their seats now. Uh, I'm Carla Hayden, the uh, CEO of Enid Pratt Free Library, and we're delighted to welcome you to the Central Library tonight. But we are so pleased you're here, and I'll try not to touch anything. It's very high tech. We are very, very pleased to have you here, despite the rain, for a very, very special edition of our Writers Live series. This evening, we are thrilled to have an amazing author whose book has been captivating the nation. You've seen him on Oprah, CBS, Sunday Morning, The View, and read all about him in national newspapers. And if those of you who tweet, he's been very active with that as well. And that's why we're very excited to have Rhodes Scholar, White House Fellow, Combat Veteran, and Baltimore native, Mr. Wes Moore. This is the best part of the job, you know that. Wow. Good evening, everybody. Good evening. <laughs> this is beautiful. I am, I am absolutely blown away. I am just, I am so moved right now. I'm, I'm serious. I mean, when you get a chance to come home and you get a chance to see friends and, and family and, and just, not even friends, just family, this means the world to me. So I'm just so thankful. I'm so thankful for all y'all being out here and braving out the rain and, and, and making it through. Um, and, you know, it's, it's funny because we, you know, for, for this book tour, we've been hitting some different cities and, and doing different things. And your, your fear is always that you go into an event and that there's nobody there. <laughs> or, or, or even worse, that you go into an event and there's like a few people there, and then you give your talk, and then at the end you ask if there are any questions, and someone stands up and says, what's your name again? <laughs> so, uh... That's why you try to pack the audience with family, so you know those questions are coming. But sincerely, I, I, am, I am truly humbled. I am truly humbled to be here tonight. And I'm just humbled to see the reaction uh, that, that this book has, has inspired and this book has received because for a couple of things. One, I keep on having to remind myself that this is a book. This is not a movie. This is not a video game. This is a book. That is inspiring the kind of conversation that, uh, that it has inspired. And the other thing that, that I'm just so inspired by is, you know, we just, we just found out that now, as of right now, the book has already had two straight weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. And thank you. Thank, thank you. But, but I, and, and, and I say that because this book is, and with all due respect to, to others, this book is not about vampires. <laughs> this book is not about political scandals. This book is not about who was doing what with whom. This book is about issues. This book is about communities. This book is about role models and involvement and the people we have in our lives helping us to make choices. And it's still, despite all that, despite all that, it's still encouraging people to go out and start a conversation. And that's been incredibly inspiring and incredibly moving. And the amazing thing about this, 
about this story and about this book, and, and I, I see two seats for my, for, my, for my mother. She's running a little late. But understand this, and with all due respect, because I'm brethren as well, my mother's Jamaican, and um, so tardiness <laughs> is, uh, is something I've come to grow accustomed to. But being Jamaican myself, I can say that. Um, but, it, but it's amazing being here. As I, as I, I'm just looking at, at the seats she's going to sit in because... If you think about this story, and you think about this book, for anyone who, and there are, there are quite a few people in the room who did know me back then, but for people who did not, who knew me just less than two decades ago, this whole ride seems extraordinarily, extraordinarily surprising. And it's because of those people. It's because of those people who were involved, those people who, who got engaged, and those people who took another life altogether very seriously, that this story is even possible. And I feel, I see my, my, my wife sitting, sitting in, the, uh, in the front row, so I just want to quickly also just acknowledge her and thank her for coming down from New York to uh, be supportive as well. But, and when you, because what, basically what happened was, so, so, so as y'all, most y'all know, you know, I, I'm, I'm a Marylander and I'm very proud of the fact that I'm a Marylander. And, we were born down, actually, actually born down in Southern Maryland, and uh, it was my, my mom and my dad and my older sister my young, and my younger sister. And then when I was about three and a half years old, my father, who was a radio personality and also television personality in both in Maryland and also the D.C. area, started complaining about his throat and how something, he felt like something was wrong. And he finished a broadcast in the evening show that he did, and then he came back home, and we were already asleep. And he was telling my mother how he was having trouble swallowing. He thought maybe it was a strep throat. He wasn't quite sure what was going on. And then the, that night, he hardly got any sleep. And the next morning, he woke up and he went to the emergency room. He said, you know, I, I really need, think I need to get this checked out. My mother decided to, my mother took us in to go to a sitter and then went over to the hospital to go, to go check on her husband. And when she got to the hospital, she noticed that the man that was standing in front of her kept on nodding his head to the side. And she was told that the reason that he kept on nodding his head back and forth was probably just because he was tired and because he didn't get much sleep the night before. What was actually happening was he was suffering from something called acute epiglottitis. And for any, uh, for any doctors in the audience, essentially uh, what it is is we all have an epiglottis which covers our windpipe and every time we breathe or we talk or we chew, it opens up and allows air inside. And when you have acute epiglottitis, essentially what it is, it's your epiglottis becomes so swollen that eventually it just sits on top of the windpipe. And so the reason that he kept on having his head nodding back and forward wasn't because he was tired, it was because he was losing air. And he was released from the hospital with the simple instructions to get some rest. And so we went back to the house, and about five hours later, my mother was inside the kitchen with my two sisters, and she was cooking dinner, and I was sitting at the dining room table. And then I started hearing my father coming down the stairs. And I did what every three-and-a-half-year-old would do when you hear your father coming down the stairs. You run to the stairs, so as soon as he hits the bottom of the stairs, he can pick you up. And I turned the corner, I looked up, and then I see him collapse and start falling towards me. Essentially what happened was his body suffocated itself. And my mother, then I hear a crash in the kitchen, then my mother runs into the room to figure out what's going on. 
And my sister, my older sister at that time started calling 911. My mother told her to call 911. And I sat there and I stared because I had no idea what was going on or what I was supposed to do. And I watched. And then the first responders came and they started trying to move us out of the way and my mother was trying to help out where she could. She started trying to give them CPR. And I watched. And then finally, my sister was trying to call 911 and was trying to explain to them what the, ad what the address was. And, and they eventually, the, once the first responders came, they put his body on the gurney and they moved him outside. And by that time, I was actually outside. And then I watched as he was loaded up into the ambulance and sent off to the, and sent off to the hospital. And by the time he got to the hospital, we found out that by the time that he'd gotten there, it was already too late. And so at three and a half years old, I watched my father pass away in front of me. At three and a half years old, you're old enough to know that something happened, but you're not quite sure what. At three and a half years old, you're old enough to know that he had moved on, but you're not quite sure where. And the next few years after that, my mother was having a lot of difficulties and a lot of challenges dealing with this transition. She now was a, out of nowhere, instantaneously, a single mother, a widow, with three children. And so, despite having a lot of support from, from family and my father's side of the family and friends and, and, uh, and, other, and other family back down here in Maryland, she said that she needed something that only her parents could give her. And so she made a decision one day to move back to the Bronx. And my grandparents had a small house up in the Bronx. And my grandparents had moved to the United States about two decades before. My grandfather was actually from Jamaica. My grandmother was, was born in Cuba. And they got married inside of Jamaica and had their children there and then moved to the United States. And one of the first things they did when they moved to the United States was save up enough money because they wanted to buy a home. And they wanted to buy a home in this country, not simply because they wanted a shelter, but because they wanted to own a piece of this country that embraced them. And so when my mother called and said she needed support, my grandparents just smiled and said, come on home. And so, the, so then the four of us moved up with my grandparents and my aunt at that point to in, inside of our tiny home inside of the Bronx. And during the, when my mother was growing up inside the Bronx, she always talks about how it was a great neighborhood to grow up, how folks looked after each other. And, and you always knew, what, you know, if you did something down the block, your family would know before you got home and, and all those stories. But as we came back to New York and as we came back to the Bronx after leaving Maryland, my mother realized that the Bronx was a very different neighborhood than the one she had left. Because the Bronx at that time, just like many other cities in this country, was suffering from something. It was suffering from something that you can find inside of little vials that was destroying blocks and destroying neighborhoods in its path. And that was in the, mid in the early and mid-1980s and the late 1980s, the Bronx became one of the many ground zeros for the birth and the growth of crack cocaine. And you saw what this was doing systematically, house by house, block by block, neighborhood by neighborhood, and the ramifications of these tiny rocks that you can fit inside of little vials. And so what happened was, as, we, as I started getting older, and I started going through, the, through this transition into manhood, started understanding, trying to understand what my role was, trying to fully understand what had happened to my father years before, that understanding turned to anger. That understanding turned to confusion. That understanding turned to fear. 
And that fear and that anger started manifesting itself in a lot of different ways, but to include being on academic and disciplinary probation, that anger, and, that anger and confusion manifested itself in being disrespectful to folks, deciding and choosing when I decided I wanted to go to school at 10 and 11 years old. And there was one incident in particular that actually I talk about a story with inside the book where my friend had just come from working. My friend was 11 years old, so what was meant by working was he was a runner. And for folks who don't know what a runner is, it's essentially someone who will move packages from one town, one side of town to another, and the older guys get him to do it because generally cops don't check little kids. And so he just finished his job, and I just finished playing a game of basketball, and we link up on the street. And so he asked me, hey, do you want to tag? And what tagging is, tagging is essentially putting down, it's spray painting on walls, whatever your code name is, your insignia, whatever, whatever you get. So mine, mine was Kid Cupid. <laughs> my self-imposed name, Kid Cupid. And so, and, and understanding my English skills, it wasn't uh, CK, it wasn't KC, it was KK because things had to be different for me. So he says, do you want to tag? And I'm like, yeah, of course. So, I re so we reach inside the bag and we start, and I start shaking up the can just to make sure the contents come out nice and clean and even. And I start spraying the K and spray the other K and then put a big circle around it. That was my tag. And then next thing you know, a cop car turns the corner. And, then you, and you hear the, that whoop, whoop, you know, the, the, the distinctive <laughs> cop siren. And then I look at my friend, he looks at me, and we start running. We run in different directions. I'm the really smart one, so I run in the direction of the cops. <laughs> and I get about three or four steps away, and they grab me, and they throw cuffs on me and throw me in the back of this car. And then a, a few seconds later, they end up grabbing him. His 11-year-old legs weren't very long. They grab him, cuff him, put him in the back of the car. At this point, I'm terrified. I mean, I am absolutely shaking. Because I knew the next step was that I would get sent down over to baby booking, which is the place where they, where they send juveniles, and then they would have to call my mom. And that was the last thing that I wanted them to do. But my friend, my friend is in the back seat with me, and he's got this bravado on. He's got, he's got that ice grill. He's got the mask on. And he's like, just tell him it wasn't you. I look at him, and I'm like, that's the dumbest thing I've heard in my life. <laughs> And I'm someone, I could have made an excuse about anything. And even I thought about that when I said, no, that doesn't make any sense. So I'm thinking about how fast I can tell the cop, okay, I'm sorry. You know, it was my mistake. I apologize, whatever. And so they come into the car, and they immediately say, so what are you guys, what are you guys thinking? And he starts into the whole, it wasn't me. I start into the whole, I'm really sorry. And the cops look at us and they just shake their heads and they start giving us a lecture. They start giving us a lecture about how stupid it was and what we were doing. And then finally they get out of the car and they pull us out of the car and they take the cuffs off and they tell us to get moving. And I remember thinking to myself how vulnerable I felt. I remember thinking to myself how that was the first time that I felt like I was no longer in control of not only my present, but my future, that I was then placing my control in the hands of someone else. And that was a feeling I never wanted to feel again. And then about four days later, about four blocks away, there I was again. Kid Cupid was on the path. <laughs>
how quickly we forget our lessons. And so my mother be, was becoming increasingly frustrated with not only my behavior outside in the neighborhood, but my behavior in school. She'd actually try to send me to another school across town. My mother was actually at that point working three different jobs. And essentially what she was doing was, and I, know, and I, and I, and I see a, a lot of heads nodding, so I, can, I know this is a very familiar story with a lot of people, but she, was, she would wake us up in the morning, and before we were even out the door, she left for her first job. And so then my grandparents would then have the responsibility to then take us to the bus station or take us off to school, and we would go about our day in school. And by the time my mother came back from her last job, we would already be asleep. So she would come home and she'd kiss us goodnight, and we'd start the process again the next day. And my mother was becoming increasingly frustrated with my behavior. She was, she was working all these jobs because she also wanted to send me to school away from our neighborhood. Our neighborhood was actually the school, and, and some of y'all might remember this because this made actually national news, but in my seventh grade year, a girl back in the Bronx who went to a Vanderchise High School was shot in the face. And my mother didn't need to hear anymore. And she was like, okay, that, this, this, is, this is not gonna work. So she sent me to a school that was actually across town, which was a great school, but in many cases it was absolutely the place that I got lost. Because then you found yourself in this island by yourself where you're increasingly becoming too rich for the kids in the neighborhood who didn't know why you had to go to school across town and too poor for the kids in school, so you eventually found yourself not feeling comfortable anywhere. And you would do whatever it took to make people accept you. Whatever your friends wanted you to do, you'd do. And then when you got in trouble, your friends were nowhere to be found. And so eventually my mother decided that was it. And she threatened me with military school ever since I was eight years old. And she said, you know, if you don't get it right, you're going to military school. And I look back and I say, okay, yeah, all right. And then I was nine. And she said, no, I'm serious. If you don't get it right, I'm saying in military school. I said, no, really, I'm, I'm working on it. And then 10, same thing. 11, same thing. And then 12, she's like, you've got a week. You've got a week. And you're gone. And so she sent me to this military school in Pennsylvania which um, it's, it's in, the, in, the, in the suburbs of Pennsylvania, but again, all I'd known up until that point was the city, so it might as well have been the middle of nowhere in Pennsylvania. This military school called, called Valley Forge. And I remember those first couple days there. I mean, hatred wasn't even an appropriate word <laughs> for what I felt towards that school and what I felt towards my mother at that point for sending me. But my mother understood something at that point. She understood that at, at that point in my life, I didn't need another friend. What I needed was parenting. What I needed was a mother who was willing to make tough decisions. So she sent me off to this school, and that first morning in military school, it's still dark outside. And then you start hearing heavy metal music. I don't know if y'all, any of y'all know Welcome, uh, Welcome to the Jungle by Guns N' Roses? So this music is blasting like at the highest decibel. And then lights are flashing on and off. And there's trash cans that they had sticks in these trash cans. And they're hitting these sticks, hitting the trash can with these sticks. And they're yelling, get up, get up, get out of your racks, plebes. Get up, get up, get out of your racks. And I remember thinking to myself, first of all, what is a plebe and what is a rack? <laughs> and then I look over at the clock. And the clock says 5.30. So we're on, we're on bunk beds, and I'm sleeping on the top bunk, and my roommate's on the bottom bunk. 
And my roommate, this cat from, this cat from Brooklyn, he gets up, he's 12 years old too, he jumps out of the bed, and his legs are shaking, his legs are like this thick, his legs are shaking. And he's like, come on, more, we gotta get up, we gotta get up, we gotta get out, get out of our racks. <laughs> and um, I look at him and I say, man, it is 5.30 in the morning. <laughs> I was like, tell him to come get me around eight o'clock. I should be ready. So he looks at me one more time while they're still yelling outside in the hallway. And I don't know if he, he again, I don't think at that point he doesn't, he doesn't know if I'm really brave or really dumb. So he leaves. He goes out in the hallway, as he's told to do. And I'll roll back over, and I go back to sleep. And then I hear, why is there only one person outside of this door? And then, boom, door slams open. The door hits the back frame of the wall. There's like blue chip, blue, blue paint chipping <laughs> off the thing. My first sergeant, who's an 18-year-old, one of the cadets in charge of us, he's yelling and screaming at me and cursing at me, things I, <laughs> curses I never even heard before. And it's spitting on the back of my head because I got my back turned to him. <laughs> and I start rolling over, and I start rolling over to, to look at him, and he stops yelling because I think he assumes that his tirade had done the trick. So I look at him, and I say, man, if you don't get out of my room... He's 18. I'm 12. So to my surprise, my man leaves my room. So I started thinking to myself, you know, this military school thing ain't bad. <laughs> so he leaves the room, and probably about 10 seconds later, you hear that same boom. And my whole chain of command walks into my room. And they pick the mattress up off the top rack. <laughs> and they turn the mattress over as if I still wasn't on the mattress. <laughs> so then I fall to the ground. And that was my welcome to my military school. <laughs> I don't know why we're applauding. That wasn't funny. No, I was kidding. <laughs> Thank you. But that, that, was my, that was my initial welcome to this school. And, and so... Needless to say, again, I didn't really like it there that much. And, um, and in the first four days, I actually ran away five times. I mean, literally, every time they would turn their back, I was gone. I mean, I was climbing over the gate, trying to get out of there, trying to find where this train station is. And then um, I kept on try trying to find where this train station was. Because there was a train station in the middle of, the Wayne, of, of Wayne that would take me to 30th Street in Philadelphia, which I knew would take me to Penn Station in New York, which would take me to the 2 train, which I could then take back to the Bronx, and I could walk back home. So I had the whole thing worked out. And, um, and, and to make a long story short, then my squad leader walks into my room. And this guy was like my nemesis, man. He, he yelled, at, he, he used to yell at all of us. And then he used to say to us, don't worry, I hate you all just the same. And, um, and so he came to my room and he kicked my roommate out of the room. And so I'm, I'm looking, I'm like, man, I was like, I don't know what's about to go down, but he doesn't want any witnesses. So this is not going to be good. <laughs> So he gets up, and, and so my roommate scurries out of the room. And, uh, and my squad leader tells me to sit down, and he said, listen, it's obvious you don't want to be here, and quite honestly, we don't want you here. So I've drawn you a map on how to get to this train station. <laughs> so I'm looking at this map like it's a piece of gold. I mean, I look at him, I got tears in my eyes. I'm like, I'll never forget you. When you get out, let me know. We'll link. And, uh, and he's just like, just get out of here. So I set my alarm for late that night, around 11.30 that night, because I knew everyone should be asleep by then, but it was enough time to give me a little, a little runway before that 
5.30 wake-up call. And, uh, and so my alarm goes off under my pillow, and I quickly shut it off, and I grab my little bag and my little flashlight and my little, um, you know, my little map. I say peace to my roommate, and I run out the door. And so I'm running through the woods trying to find where this train station is. And again, I'm, I'm from the city. I don't know anything about any woods. And my imagination at that point, because I'm 12 years old, is just going crazy. I'm, I'm hearing snakes and lions and elephants. And, but I'm trying to follow this map. 20 paces this way, you'll see a big rock. 20 paces that way, you'll see a big tree. I'm like, ain't nothing but trees out here. And, um, and finally, I just start crying. Oh, my <laughs> God. Finally, I just started crying because there's nothing I wanted more than just to go home. And no one was listening to me. And then I started hearing more leaves rustling. I thought it was just more elephants. <laughs> and then I turned around and I realized it was my entire chain of command. They followed me out. The map was fake. The map took you to the middle of the woods. <laughs> but they just wanted to see how bad I wanted to go home. And, and that night they got their answer. I wanted to go home pretty bad. And um, then they brought me back to campus, and we're in the middle of something called plebe system. And what plebe system is, it's the, your first orientation to the school where they cut you off from the outside world. No phone calls, no emails, no, well, there wasn't an email back then. No, no television, none of that. You're cut off. And they brought me back to campus. Um, oh, there they are. Hi, guys. <laughs> I'm talking about our process. Um, <laughs> thank you all for coming. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's my oldest sister, my mother. Um, and so they brought me back to campus and they said, listen, we're going to allow you to make one phone call. You've got five minutes to do it. I don't care who you call, but you've got five minutes to make that phone call. And I called the only number that I knew. My mom. And I called her and she wasn't expecting to hear from me for six weeks. Uh, but now, in the fourth day in, she gets a phone call at 1 o'clock in the morning. So she's like, what is going on? And I call, I'm like, I'm fine. I'm good. I just want to come home. And if you let me come back home, I'll do better. I'll clean my room. I'll clean your room. I'll do whatever you want me to do. Just let me back home. And she stopped me. And she said, too many people have sacrificed in order for you to be there. She said, too many people are rooting for you and you're working too hard and are working too hard in order for you to be there and your father's looking down on you and he's proud of you. And we just want you to give it a shot. And I'm not going to stand here and say that, that, that this changed overnight because it didn't. But that conversation meant a lot to me. Because it was through that process that I began to understand that I was part of something bigger. It was through that process that I began to understand that my life meant more to people than just me. It was through that process that I began to understand the importance of accountability, the importance of responsibility, and the importance of leadership. And then so after that first initial troubling period at the place, the school began to make sense. And it wasn't because of necessarily picking me up and putting me from one environment to another environment. Because actually, I think that had relatively little to do with it. More importantly, there was a psychological change that was now taking place. There was a much clearer understanding of what this journey of manhood would require. 
and the type of expectations that went right along with it. And I started to understand, better understand my role, not just in my family, but in my community and in, in my society. Later on, fast forward, I ended up, that, that mandatory year turned into actually finishing high school from there. I ended up joining the Army and becoming a paratrooper and then going on to Johns Hopkins University. And it was really there that the story of the book began to unfold. Because while I was, a study, while I was doing a study abroad in South Africa while a student at Johns Hopkins University, I was on the phone with my mom again. And she said, you know, I've got something crazy to tell you. She said, the cops are looking for a guy for the murder of a police officer. And they're looking for Wes Moore. And the posters say, if you see him, he's soon be armed and very dangerous. And that started haunting me. And when I came back to the United States, I started reading the whole series of articles that happened around this crime and what ended up happening. As I was reading these articles, I began to understand what actually happened on February 7, 2000, where four guys walked into a jewelry store. Two guys had guns, two guys had mallets. And the two guys with guns got everybody on the ground, while the two guys with mallets then proceeded to go around the store, breaking jewelry cases and grabbing rings and watches and necklaces. And they got away with about $400,000 worth of jewelry. And then one of them yelled, let's go. And then all four guys then ran out of the store. One of the people who were on the ground that day was an off-duty police officer who was moonlighting as a security guard. That police officer was a 13-year veteran of the Baltimore Police Force. He was a three-time recipient of the Police Officer of the Year Award. He was a father of five. He had triplets. And the reason he was working that day was because he was trying to make extra money for his family. And he got up from the floor and then he ran outside to see if he could stop these guys. And he didn't realize that one of the vehicles that he was kneeling next to to try to figure out where they were was one of the vehicles that they were in. And then a window rolled down and he was shot three times at point blank range. And this case made big news in Maryland, big news in Baltimore. And I know a lot of people remember this story. There was a 12-day national manhunt for the four guys who they felt who were responsible for it. And finally, they caught all four of them. And one of the guys I realized through the articles was living in the same neighborhood that I was living in. He was around the same age that I was. And his name was also Wes Moore. And then as I began to read these articles, I realized that we had much more in common than just our name. And even that the fact that we were on the same age, that we both came up in single-parent households, that we both had trouble academically and also discipline troubles and troubles in the neighborhood. And then I began to think, how does this happen? How does this happen inside of our society and inside of our country where you can have two kids who are having similar challenges around the same times and end up in two completely different places? And I wanted to explore it. I wanted to understand more. This story continued to haunt me. So a few years after I first learned about the other Westmore, and I found that, that his fate was that he received a life sentence without the possibility of parole, I decided to write him a note. I wasn't sure if he'd write back, 
but I knew that I needed to write him. So I wrote him a note, basically just introducing myself, explaining how I first heard about him, and then asking him a series of questions that I just wanted to hear the answers to. I knew he had children, so I wanted to ask how his kids were doing. I knew that his older brother was the trigger man, so I wanted to ask if he ever saw his brother. And then a month after mailing that letter, I received an envelope back from Jessup Correctional Institution from Westmore. And the first thing that he wrote inside the letter was he first thanked me for writing because he said, when you're in prison, you think that the whole world doesn't think you exist. And then he proceeded to answer the questions that I laid out. And that one letter turned into dozens of letters, those dozens of letters turned into dozens of visits and became much of the framework of what this book is all about. And there's so many lessons that I learned from doing this entire process. But one of the lessons hit me so hard that it literally is something that we put on the, t on the cover of the book. And that is the chilling truth is that his story could have been mine and the tragedy is that my story could have been his. Had it not been for some pretty aggressive and creative intervention, had it not been for people stepping up when they didn't have to, had it not been for mentors, had it not been for <laughs> websites. <laughs> had, it not, had, it not been, had it not been for significant leverage and a few tentative steps in the right direction, I realized that my life could have been very different. And I think about Wes. And it's important to understand this about Wes. Wes is not a dumb guy by any stretch of the imagination. If you read his letters and you listen to him, he is not. He, Wes, is, Wes is actually a person who's actually pretty insightful and who's made some, some pretty unforgiving decisions in his life. And it's suffering the consequences for the decisions. But this is not someone who was just dumb. This is someone had that level of intervention or that support or whatever been there that his life could have been very different. One thing I'm very clear about with this story, and there, there are a couple things that I'm very clear about, is that one, this story is not some type of compare and contrast of two mothers because it goes much deeper than that as well. Because some people would say, oh, it's about the mothers. What you fundamentally had, you had two mothers who cared very deeply for their children. But here's the truth about what happened in the case of Wes's mother. She was the first one in her family to go to college. She graduated from, from BCCC and was actually then accepted to Johns Hopkins University. But then the Pell Grants were cut and she couldn't finish. And I can't help but think how life could have been different for her, how, how life could have been different for her family had she actually been able to achieve that degree. Another thing I'm very clear about this book is not to make excuses for what happened on February 7, 2000. This book is not about casting revisionist history. This book is not about reopening cases. This book is not about casting judgment on guilt or casting judgment on sentencing. If you're looking for that kind of book, this is not the right one. I make it very clear in the first pages of this book and throughout that I know who the only victims were that day were. And it was Sergeant Prothero and his family. Because this is a person who did nothing wrong besides go to work that day. 
And there's a third thing that I'm very clear about with this book. I don't want people to pick up this book and to simply throw it to the side and say, wow, that's a really interesting story. This book is a larger call to action. This book is a larger call to action about all of us, about families and communities and societies that we believe in and that we grow in. And what type of societies that we're actually growing. This book is much bigger than just two boys. This book is much bigger than Baltimore. This book is much bigger than one socioeconomic group. This book is about all of us. It's about the decisions that we make in our life, the people we have in our lives helping us to make those decisions, and the ramifications for those decisions. It's about the leverage we use and the expectations we place on ourselves. One thing that Wes said when I was, as I was speaking with Wes inside of prison, and one thing I do inside the book is I interlace conversations that we had inside of the book, inside of these stories, because I never want the reader to forget the stakes. And one of the conversations Wes and I had, I asked him, I said, do you think that we're products of our environment? And he looked back at me and he said, actually, I think we're products of our expectations. We're products of our expectations. And not just the expectations that we place in ourselves. Because in many cases, the expectations we place in ourselves are actually a reflection of the expectations that others will place on us. As Wes said, if people expect you to get older and graduate from high school and graduate from college and go on to be a success and be a good father and be a good husband, then it's amazing that that's, a, that's actually what kids will do. But if the expectation is that that individual child or that neighborhood probably won't finish, that that child or that neighborhood will probably be involved in the juvenile justice system, that that child or that neighborhood will probably end up in and out of facilities their entire life, well, then kids have a funny way of doing that too. What expectations are we placing upon our society? Because they have a funny way of becoming the expectations that we place upon ourselves. This book is about all of us. This book is about who we are and who we hope to become. And this book is about the fact that we are more powerful than we could ever imagine in actually changing the lives and the destinies of those around us. One thing I'm very clear about inside of this book is as I'm highlighting the anecdotes and as I'm highlighting the stories, it wasn't like these were major, massive interventions that took place in either, play, in either life. Sometimes it's as simple as small conversations. Sometimes it's as simple as someone coming up and lending you a hand when you need it. Sometimes it's as simple as someone, after you fail, coming up to you and saying, it's all right, you don't have to do it again. The smallest level of interventions can make the biggest difference. Just like the smallest decisions can have the biggest ramifications. This book highlights the importance of our interconnectedness and the importance to make sure that we are our brother's keeper and that we are taking care of one another. I've been incredibly inspired by this because one of the, one of the things I'm most proud of with this book is actually the back of the book. Because in the back of the book, there's actually a collection of over 200 organizations that are on the ground doing the work. And it's a section that we call where to go to help or where to go for help. So if you are a single mother in Baltimore or two parents in Fort Lauderdale, 
and you're looking for support, you read these stories and you see how, wow, these stories are really resonating with me in some way, here are a list of organizations in your area that would love to hear from you. Or if, you have, or if you're someone with more time on your hands, or you're a philanthropist, well, here's a list of organizations that would love to hear from you. This book is about all of us and the importance of our collective involvement in each other's lives. And that's why it's so inspiring to see you all here today because that's the larger message of this. This message is not about making excuses. This, not, this message is not about creating sympathy. This message is about what are we going to do now? And it's amazing being in a room with a whole collection of foot soldiers who are doing something about it. Amen. It's amazing being in a room with a whole bunch of foot soldiers who are basically looking at what's happening and who are saying, not on my watch. One thing that we loved as, as, as soldiers when we came back from overseas and people come up to you and you say, thank you for your service. And I look at school teachers and I look at community leaders and I look at police officers and firefighters and mentors and parents and I say thank you for your service because it's just as important that you win your mission as it was that we won ours. Make no mistake that the battle that we fight is on so many different fronts and the people who we need involved in actually fighting those battles are all around us because the public service and the idea of making a difference must be a way of life for all of us. And what I, do, what I try to do with this book is showing us what happens where fundamentally you are two kids who are both searching for help. One kid got it and the other kids didn't. And now the world can bear witness to the final results of either our attention or our apathy. And the ramifications are huge. So I want to thank you all for coming out here tonight. Thank you all for your involvement. And God bless you for everything that you don't cross me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. We're not, we're, not, we're not done yet. We're not done. There, there, are, there are a couple things I'd like to do, actually. And then, uh, and then after I do it, if you just indulge me for a little bit, and then after I do it, what I'd, um, what I'd like to do is then also uh, just open up to questions. And if folks have any questions, I, I, would, I would love to entertain them. Uh, one, as I said, one of the things I'm most proud of is actually the, the nonprofits that we partner with in this. And there are a few different nonprofits that every time we go speak, because one thing I was very clear about is if this whole book process was going to be about going about and, and sitting in Barnes and Nobles and signing books, then I'm not interested, right? I mean, I, I'm interested in actually going out with people and actually highlighting people who are doing the work and actually be helping to be part of that large solution. So what I've asked to do, I've asked a few folks in see that we've gone to just to highlight a little bit of the work that they do. And there, there are three people here, three very important people here who I just want to uh, not only thank, but then ask them to just come up for a couple minutes and talk a little bit about what they do and what their organization does. And if you're interested in learning more, they're here. They're here. Uh, the three organizations that, um, that I, I want to highlight is one is going to be the, uh, the Chesapeake Center for Youth Development, and the, the, the founder and the head is uh, Ivan Leshinsky. 
And Ivan has been there for the past 35 years. This person's committed. And actually, I had the absolute pleasure of speaking to a group of his young people earlier on this week. And let me tell you, I mean, the work that they're doing is absolutely remarkable. And I'm just thankful to call Ivan a partner in all this. The second person I'd like to introduce is Brian Sessions. Brian is someone who I've known for a while. He's a, he's a graduate of the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship. Uh, but more importantly, uh, well, and, and for those who don't know, sorry, the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship is an organization that is now all over the world. And it teaches kids how not just to be employees, but how to be employers. It teaches them business skills. It teaches them how to create a balance sheet, how to create a, a business plan, and how to take your passion and to turn your passion into, into a business. And, uh, and also what I'm really proud about right now is that uh, you know, Brian is also currently at the University of Baltimore majoring in entrepreneurship. And, 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 and the third person I want to introduce is, uh, is someone who is a, uh, you know, just a, absolutely you know, a role model me and just a gem for the city, and that's David Miller. Uh, and I know some, many people know him, but David is the co-founder, and I love this title, the Chief Visionary Officer. <laughs> the Chief Visionary Officer of Raising Him Alone. And for those who don't know what Raising Him Alone is, it's an organization that supports single mothers uh, who are in the process of raising him alone and showing them that the leverage that they need in order to do this process is here and the support is here. So if you would, I would just like to ask uh, you know, all three of those people just to briefly come up and talk a little bit about what they do, and then immediately after that, I'd love to entertain any questions that you might have. Thank you very much. Good to see you again. Great to see you again. Should I go first? <laughs> living proof that one size doesn't fit all here. <laughs> but anyway, um, as Wes said, after 30 or 35 years of having the privilege of uh, leading an organization that really does great work here in Baltimore, you can imagine how exciting it is to have somebody like Wes come on the scene. You know, in my view, I mean, I pride myself on someone who knows what's going on around me. and. Wes just comes out of nowhere and all of a sudden he's this incredible national youth advocate that's calling attention to organizations like ours up here and it's just really astounding after all this time. Our organization was highlighted in the book um, on the merits of it, our after school program, Changes, that's with a Z at the end, um, but we also operate a very successful, unique alternative school, the Chesapeake Alternative School in the South Walton area of Brooklyn. And we do this because we're engaging juvenile justice youth, kids are involved, court-involved kids, and we're doing this in the community where they live and keeping them in the community so they don't have to go into detention centers and juvenile institutions. We also operate in-home family intervention programs goes under the name Jiffy Juvenile Intervention Family Independence Project, and we have a whole variety, a range of workforce development programs. And, you know, I've just been able to surround myself with the people that are as dedicated and committed as I am, and that's why it's, it's worked as long as it has. Um, we do what we do because 
we know that boys get worse once they get into the juvenile justice system. Um, yet our elected officials don't put a halt or stop building more institutions and detention centers. And every dollar that goes into building a juvenile institution or a detention center is money that's being drained from the communities, drained from nonprofit organizations and communities groups that struggle year after year. And there's plenty of practice-based evidence that these programs not only are changing lives, helping families cope, um, and doing a whole range of other things. In our case, um, not only is that true, but we've also found that our success, or what, what we attribute to our success, is lots of people want to partner with us as well. So having said that, I just want to end. Um, you, you probably imagine by now that I, I live and breathe this stuff, and um, every chance I get, I talk to people about what our organization is doing. And about 15 years ago, I happened to be telling our story to somebody, and um, all of a sudden, he got very kind of emotional and passionate, and he turned to me and he said, um, so you folks are, um, are out there and there are all these kids and they're floating down this river of life and the river of life is wide and it's deep and any river that's like that and it's got some current to it, there are going to be um, rocks on the side, on the shore there are going to be branches and all these kids that are floating down this river of life, some of them drift off to the side and they get caught up in the branches from these falling trees and sometimes there's little whirlpools and eddies on the side and they get caught in that as well. And he said, you people are the ones that are out there on the banks of the river pushing them back into the mainstream. Well, that's what our organization does. Thank you very much. You can tell I'm a lot shorter than Ivan. So, uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Ivan's like seven foot, so we got we to work it out. Uh, once again, good evening. My name is David Miller. I'm the chief visionary officer of the Urban Leadership Institute and co-founder of the Raising Them Alone campaign. And I haven't been doing this work as long as Ivan. Um, I have about 20 years in, and I started doing this work, ladies and gentlemen. My best friend was shot and killed standing next to me here in Baltimore. I was a freshman in college, a good friend of mine had come back from Morehouse and we were celebrating, um, completing our first year of academic studies and my best friend was actually shot and killed. Uh, and I started, that, started this body of work to really begin to think critically about the kinds of things that we need to do with African American males and families. And about two years ago, we started an initiative called Raising Him Alone. Because ladies and gentlemen, the, re the reality is we have an alarming number of boys like Wes growing up um, being raised by a single mom and a grandmom. And so the Open Society Institute uh, through New York City, uh, George Soros was gracious enough to help us uh, get this initiative off the ground and we provide advocacy, support, um, and service linkage, a service linkage model for single mothers who are raising male children. And we really focus a lot on uh, strategies to reconnect dad, we really struggle, we really, we really struggle with um, finding ways to reclaim families and reconnect families. We do a lot of stuff around increasing academic achievement among African-American males and a whole host of things that are really designed to support families. So once again, I want to thank uh, Wes because I think he has an amazing story that we all need to hear. Thank you.
Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I'm not even going to play myself, I'm sure. <laughs> Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Brian Sessions. Uh, I'm a sophomore, or going into my junior year at the University of Baltimore, where I study entrepreneurship. And um, I just want to stand here, and if I can be honest, like, like Wes said, I'm from Nifty. What better way than to let you understand the power of Nifty versus being an example and giving my personal testimony? So, um, like I said, if I can be honest, Nifty has deeply, deeply, really impacted my life. And I know it's kind of cliche. You guys probably expected me to stand up here and say that, but I'll prove it to you if I can. I grew up here in Baltimore. I'm not sure about how many of you are familiar with Greenmount Avenue. I grew up in the heart of Baltimore City, Greenmount Avenue, on a little street called Baltimore. I mean, a little street called Brentwood, off of 24th. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I, I attended the National Academy Foundation High School. The short name for it is NAF. And um, the average student had about eight periods. I had nine. I had nine class periods. I say that because almost every day I was in the principal's office. <laughs> <So> <laughs> um, in my junior year, I took a course at NAF called NIFTY. At that time, it was the National Foundation for Teaching Entrepreneurship. And in that class, we were required to write a business plan and to compete. And actually, my NIFTY teacher, Ms. Pamela Banks, is here in the audience. <laughs> so in this class, I just took it as another class. I just wanted to pass. Let me get at least a D and I'm out of here. <laughs> so, so, but this, this class was actually different because it actually, it, it wasn't just by the book. They taught me how to take my passions, something I like. That's how they connected to me right there. My passions and turn it into a business. So I looked at it as, wow, I can do what I like and make money. <laughs> hey, I'm going to try to get hired in F. So to make a, a long story short, I competed at that time uh, my business was an after-school acting program for underprivileged youth called Sessions Acting. And um, I competed, placed second place, and one of the judges, Miss Katie Schroeder from Nifty, she saw that I, could put, she saw that I had the potential to compete uh, citywide. To make a long story short, I competed citywide, I, um, placed second, and through Nifty, through Nifty, I was able to get so many opportunities. I mean, being interviewed on the radio, uh, when I won the competition, I received $500. Um, <laughs> I was in newspapers. I mean, I met so many people, and it, it was just really an outlet for me. And, and I thank God for Nifty. And to be honest, I, I believe God used Nifty as a tool to help me get to my purpose in life. And I say that because Nifty actually took time with me. They, they took time. At this time, I'm not even doing the after-school acting program, and Nifty still stuck with me. Uh, God led me into a, a photography company called Jesus Films Photography, and that is, is, is going good. And Nifty has been there to support me. And um, just to make a long story short, through Nifty, helping me realize the potential of me, I saw God's voice calling me toward the ministry. I'm now a minister at 19 years old. <laughs> And I, I leave you with this. My mother told me, she said, no matter what you do, no matter what you do, bless somebody else. 
My pastor put it this way. He said, if I can touch someone's life, if I can help someone along this journey, then my living is not in vain. And I encourage other young men and women here, here, who may have been in the, the situation predicament I was in or West, um, shoot. I, I know you hear aim for the sky. No, aim for the moon. Because if you miss, you'll land amongst the stars. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Um, for, again, thank, thank all three of y'all so much. And, and I see, thank you. And, uh, and we, have, we have a microphone over, over here if, uh, if people are interested in, in, asking, in asking questions. Um, and again, I'm, I'm here to, to field any questions that, uh, that, that folks might have. Um, yes? I don't need a mic. Yes, sir. <laughs> I just wanted to put a plug in for the Enoch Pratt Library in terms of literacy, care after school, and changing lives. Having meetings like this. Yeah. Absolutely. And... That's absolutely right, and also, and, and thank you also just for Enoch Pratt for for having these type of meetings, for hosting, you know, this event. I there's actually a scene in the book where I talk about where education actually started making sense to me, uh, because you haven't met someone who hated reading more than me, growing up, and but there's a scene when I actually talk about when the first time that a book that actually made sense to me was put inside of my hands, and it was actually a book called Fab Five, and I don't know if you all remember the Michigan basketball team that had five freshmen that went to the NCAA tournament, and a guy named Mitch Alban wrote a book called Fab Five. My mother said, I've got to get him reading. So what she did was she gave me a book that I might like to read. And she knew I was a basketball nut. So she bought me this book, Fab Five, and I devoured that book. And then next thing you know, I went on to my next book, and I devoured that one, and the next book, and devoured that one. And then I don't know where the feeling of the pages in my hands started becoming addictive. The feeling of completion once you get to the back of the book actually started to become addictive. So that importance of education, and not just about the reading, writing, and arithmetic and all that stuff, but just the importance of actually how it teaches critical thinking, how it teaches life building and choices. All that stuff is very important. And thank you to the, to the Proud Library helping to facilitate that. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. The, que the question is how the book and the relationship has affected uh, the other Westmore. Uh, one thing on, on that point, I, I want to make a quick point that the a significant portion of the, of the proceeds for this book are actually going towards two nonprofit organizations. Uh, one is an organization called City Year, which is an organization that, uh, that gives kids a year of service throughout the year. You see the, the ones who wear the red jackets. Those are City Year volunteers. And the second one is actually a group called the U.S. Dream Academy, which is an organization that supports children of the incarcerated. Um, I say, that I say that in a preface to your, que your question. I was actually very reluctant to write this book in the first place. I have a friend who's a writer, uh, a woman named Terry Williams. I don't know if you all know. She wrote a book called Black Pain. It's a fantastic book. Um, but she knew that I had reached out to Wes and I'd gotten to know Wes. And she said, you know what, I think there's a bigger story there. I think there's a bigger truth to be understood and something that needs to be shared. And my initial reaction was no for a whole collection of different reasons. I felt like I didn't have time. I felt like I didn't want to dig that deeply into his life, and I honestly didn't want to dig that deeply into, into my own life. And there were two real things that helped me, that led me to want to turn this into something larger. 
The first was I thought about that police officer and the, tra and the tragic death of Sergeant Prothero because I felt like if I could do something that could help these tragedies from happening, then I needed to do it. And as, as I said before, as, as Edmund Burke once said, all it takes for evil to triumph is for good people to do nothing. And I thought about something that Wes told me, going back to your question, because I told him about it. And you know, Wes, was ba Wes basically said, you know, I've, I've wasted every opportunity I've ever had in life. And if you can do something that can help people understand the ramifications for their decisions and also help people understand the neighborhoods these decisions are being made in, then I think you should do it. So Wes has really been, you know, again, he has, he has without his support of this, this project could have never had gotten done. And there was two main reactions he had after he got a chance to read the book. The first one, he was, he was amazed at how much research went into it, because I did over 200 hours of interviews with him and his friends and family, my friends and family, uh, just to make sure you're really getting the facts and the feel of the story right. And the second reaction was, he said, after getting a chance to read the book in its entirety, um, it just shocked him how little that he's done with his life. And so that, I think, has helped. Uh, so I think, you know, Wes has been very involved in this process also because also for his children, because he says he wanted his children to better understand his life. Wes is also now a grandfather. Wes became a, gar a grandfather at 33. So he wanted his kids to get a better understanding of his life and his decisions. Yes. What's going on, Jessica? How you doing? Amen. She was asked some tough questions, too. Seriously. I was like, where'd you get those questions from? Are there any questions? Or, uh, or any oh, yes, ma'am. I'm sorry. Hi.
Thank you. Thank you. And, 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 that's, and one thing, and I think it's a very important point too, because one thing I didn't, I, I knew you could not enter this process and do this process justice if you went into this process being judgmental. When we think about, you know, how many lives are out there, and sometimes the lives that we just kind of push off to the side, and people always ask me, oh, why, you know, why did you reach out, and why did you do this, and this, and that? Because you know why? Because it's amazing to me how little separates us from another life altogether, if you were really willing to actually pull, peel the onion back a little bit. And as long as, if, if we're not willing to do that, if we're not willing to actually explore things a little deeper and explore things that might make us seem uncomfortable or might not seem kosher at first or whatever the case might be, we'll never be able to advance as a society. Bless you. Bless you. I hope he's applying for the Rhodes Scholarship. Yeah. Blessings. And, and, and I tell you, and, and I, I, there's an anecdote when I talk about in the book the, uh, about with the Rhodes Scholarship, uh, the former mayor, Kurt Schmoke. When I was a junior in college, I was interning with him, brought me into his office, and he's like, I want you to consider the Rhodes Scholarship. Okay? So, again, high expectations. Because that expectation then became my expectation, where I was like, well, I'm going to get a Rhodes Scholarship. Now. So, he's going to get a Rhodes Scholarship. Yes, ma'am. Not to ask you. Yes, ma'am. Amen. Bless you. Yes, yes. Good. And, and, I, and I really want to recognize you. One, one of the things that we have through the, um, through, through our, through the website, uh, theotherwestmore.com, there's a part where you can, where you can you know, comment, send messages. And let me tell you, I, this is sometimes people send these things and like, no one really gets them. I actually get these things. All right? And I take it seriously, and I really appreciate when people write. And you wrote. And you wrote a beautiful message about the work that you're doing, about the students that you love dearly. And we've, and we've actually now, you know, built a relationship, been in communication through this. So I just want to thank you for your support. Thank you for your support of your young men and, and, and for, 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 you know, for, for all of the kids you work with. And just thank you for coming out today. Sincerely, bless you. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. The one with the good handshake and the great smile. You know, I, I think when, when I think about some of the things that really helped, that really helped me in my process, is as I began to understand that I was part of something bigger. Uh, when I understood, like for example, you know, at, at military school, and again, I'm just using the military school example, even though it doesn't necessarily have to be military school per se. But I started understanding that the only way that my plea brothers could make it is if I pushed them. And the only way that I can make it is if they push me. And so I started to understand the interconnectedness. I started to understand I had a bigger role. So as I was there, 
I started getting some responsibility. So at first they were like, okay, Moore, you're now a Lance Corporal. Your job is to make sure this corridor is swept every day. And I started taking that personally. Because if that corridor looked good, they came up to me and they're like, hey, Moore, the corridor's looking good. Good job. And if it didn't look good, they're like, hey, Moore, why is there dirt on that spot right there? And then eventually the corridor, I, started, I became a sergeant. And now I was in charge of a squad. And now I had four guys who reported to me. And that squad became a platoon. That platoon became a company. By the time I graduated from the school, I graduated as, as the regimental commander, the number one cadet on campus. And the reason is because I started to understand what responsibility was, and I started to take it personally. And that's why I think something that really helped me was that once I began to feel like I was something, part of something bigger, and there were real, tangible responsibilities I was in charge of, that that started to make a difference in how I saw myself and how I then self-motivated myself. I didn't need anybody pushing me at that point. I knew what I had to do. And, and teamwork. That's exactly right. Yes, sir. Brother Marco. Um, Wes, I'm sure I speak for everyone in saying that we're very proud of you. Bless and um, I'm delighted to be We share a brotherhood bond um, in Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated. And um, so, Dr. Hayden, it's amazing because it seems that all of these outstanding men that the, the Pratt Library feature happen to. Old membership, and I <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sure he would be proud to know that, and I'm saying this particularly for our Baltimore people, that Alpha Phi Alpha just this past weekend awarded about $40,000 in scholarships to African-American high school males here in Baltimore. So if you have a high school young man who is a junior going into his senior year, our Botillion program, we just had 25 young men in Baltimore area schools, including surrounding counties, who we proudly presented scholarships to. Please see us or look at our website, Delta Lambda Chapter, Alpha Phi Alpha. This is what Wes is talking about. We're all connected, and we all have to help one another. Amen. 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 Yes, ma'am, and then I'll come back to you. Yes, ma'am. Good, ma'am. How you doing? I know, I know exactly what you're saying. I know, I know exactly what you're saying. And for, for, for those who might not have heard the question, the question is, how do you deal with the guys who are coming up where they're trying to do the right thing, but it seems like the people around them aren't? And now they feel like they're out of place because they're trying to go on to school. They're trying to be part of the community, and it feels like the people are, are almost pushing against them. There, in, in my opinion, there is no tougher balance than trying to oppose peer pressure. Nothing tougher. 
when you were coming up and you're still trying to fig- you're tr- still trying to get your feet about you in terms of what does this adulthood process mean? Whether it be you know whether it be women going to you know womanhood or, or boys going to manhood, there's nothing more difficult than almost trying to swim against the stream. And one thing we have is that when you are in a situation, when you're in a community or an environment where it almost is the norm that you're not going to do well or where people are bullied so bad that they think suicide is the best option on how to deal with it, you know you've got some serious upstream swimming that you've got to do. The one thing I also firmly believe about that, though, is that's where trying to provide some type of circle of support around that person comes in. And even if that circle of support doesn't have to be a whole team of people, even if it just starts off as a few people who are showing them that what you're doing is right, keep going. What you're doing is good, keep pushing. Because as long as we can be that mustard seed inside of that child's life, it's amazing how that will fundamentally grow. And that's, that's really what all children are looking for. Children are looking for acceptance. Children are looking to be brought into something. They're looking for people to, walk, to, to actually walk with them and to say, you know what, you're doing well. And one thing you know by, by, by the question I know folks in here know is, the fact is, if we're not willing to do it, these other folks will. They'll bring them in. But as long as we're willing to be that one or those two people who are willing to actually form that circle around them, and again, just give them enough space to allow for that process of adulthood to grow. And one of the things I say in the book is that that weight of manhood can be so heavy sometimes on the shoulders of a young child that if they have to bear that weight by themselves, it'll break them. So our job becomes just to lift the weight just a little bit, just enough for their shoulders to grow out so they can carry it by themselves. And that's where I believe that if, even, if it's just, even if it's just a one or two or a handful of people who are willing to embrace them and show them and guide them and work with them, they can actually make the difference. One thing my mother says, and I think it's absolutely right, and she said it for a while, is that kids need to think that you care before they care what you think. And I think that's where that fundamental support comes in. As long as we're willing to show them that we care, that their vested interest is our vested interest, even if it's just one or two people showing them that, and that they have those options, that will create the space in order to lift that weight to give them that process of going through. But they can't feel like they're doing this process by themselves. They can't feel like they're, they're walking this journey by themselves. Because if they do, it's too easy to collapse. That's what I'd say. I think that's a wonderful place to end this right now. We need to have you meet these folks personally and uh, sign some books. So um, we're going to say, let's give uh, Wes a wonderful Baltimore thank you. The Ivy Bookshop is outside and they have copies of Wes's book there for sale and he will be signing them down at the, uh, in the end of the hall. Thank you for coming. <laughs>